You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. It's Friday, November 25th. I'm your host, Alexis Kenyon. Coming up, we're in our second day of listening to some of our favorite episodes from our Follow the Waste series, which track Boulder County's goal of reducing waste to zero by the year 2025. Today's program starts with Jamie Sutler, who produced this first story in our series. It's something we all do several times a day. We take showers, wash our hands, do the dishes, and go to the bathroom. And we probably don't think about where the water and its content go. It's out of sight, out of mind. But not to Dr. Sherry Cook. Thinking about what goes down the drain is her job and her passion. I'm a wastewater person. For people in my field, that's that's where it starts for us, right? It's also where the fun starts. Dr. Cook teaches environmental engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she thinks it's not waste we're flushing down the drain, it's valuable treasure going to waste. Why are we saying that we're treating this water? Why don't we just manage the resources in the water? She says there are three components of wastewater that can be managed to our benefit nutrients, energy, and water. Usually we're taking the carbon and we're turning it into an energy source, like methane being the most common. We turn the nitrogen and the phosphorus into some sort of artificial fertilizer, you know, compost or biosolids that you can apply even to your home garden if it's managed and treated well enough. And of course, there is the water itself that can be cleaned and returned to the river from which it came to support aquatic habitats and for us to drink and irrigate crops. So how does the magic happen? How does sewage go from an ick factor to a valuable commodity? For that answer, we went to the City of Boulder's wastewater treatment plant, which, to reflect the industry's paradigm shift, has a new name. So welcome to the City of Boulder's water resource recovery facility. Glad to have you here. Cole Sigmund manages the plant that's logically placed on the east side of the town at a lower elevation that allows gravity to send the waste downhill. He says that when someone in Boulder flushes a toilet, it takes about two hours for their contribution to get to the facility and begin its resource recovery journey. So this is the the first step in the process. So it's called the preliminary treatment step. Upon arrival, sewage travels up what looks like small escalators that remove toilet paper and other debris. It's a loud and pretty smelly place and a bit unnerving to look at. Once an operator found a couple of hundred dollar bills in the raw sewage, and even a caiman, a small alligator that was quickly turned over to wildlife officials. Trash like toilet paper is taken to a landfill after being washed. Then the liquid part goes to clarifiers, concrete circular ponds with long rotating arms that skim grease and other materials that float to the surface. The effluent from that process gets pumped up to the aeration basins. That's where biology uh, takes over and over the treatment process and a lot of biology removes not only the organic material but also nutrients. The basins are large rectangular ponds that aerate the water which also break up hormones excreted by humans that you may have heard can feminize male fish in rivers. More solids get removed in another set of circular clarifiers, and that sludge is conveyed to anaerobic digesters a few hundred feet away. The effluent without that sludge is run through ultraviolet disinfection and returned to Boulder Creek, flowing just north of the facility. But this is not the end of the story. The sludge, at this point the consistency of tomato soup, is run through centrifuges to get more water removed, and the result is 
to something that looks more like brownie mix, which we call biosolids. Those biosolids get picked up by about seven trucks per week back in and get filled up. Then they are taken to eastern Colorado where they are used by farmers as fertilizer. The anaerobic digesters that produce the biosolids also produce methane. And after a process that Boulder implemented about a year and a half ago, the gas is put into a pipeline. So based on the um, production at the wastewater facility, we are able to power about 65% of our trucks. That's Kathy Carroll of Western Disposal Services, the company that collects trash, recycling, and compost materials all the way from Nederland in West Boulder County, east to Broomfield, and now even in parts of Jefferson County. About 38 of their 60 collection trucks are running on the renewable natural gas that is produced by the city's water resource recovery facility. Carol showed me a long row of about a dozen hookup stations where what we used to call garbage trucks fill their tanks with natural gas under the shelter covered with solar panels. In 2010, we decided to begin to transition our fleet from diesel to compressed natural gas. We are a local company and we really do, um, we have a, we a direct impact and we uh, benefit directly from from having cleaner air. We all we live here, we work here, we grow our families here. We are part of this community. So the reduction of natural gas, or excuse me, the reduction of carbon emissions is important to us. The company has entered a long-term contract with the city to purchase all the gas the water resource recovery plant produces. But could there be other resources that might be recovered from wastewater? Sigmund says that there are several ideas. For one, water moving through pipes is often warm, and that heat could be harnessed to run the plant. Also, Sigmund says that some of the algae that does grow in their clarifiers could be harvested for fertilizer and one day even be used to make shoes. Dr. Cook likes ideas that look at the big picture of how we can use what we used to get rid of. Right, if we can get more methane from the feces that's coming out of humans and decrease some of the fracking that's happening, there's a huge benefit. Although challenges lie ahead for the wastewater treatment industry from emerging contaminants like PFAS chemicals and microplastics, Dr. Cook sees them as opportunities to find solutions that might yield unique resources to make a truly circular economy where waste is put to work instead of just circling the drain. Maybe a little embarrassing to be this passionate about waste, but I do really like it. From the Boulder Water Resource Recovery Facility, for KGNU, I'm Jamie Sudler.
The Marshall Fire left the need for large-scale cleanup. As part of our 2022 Follow the Waste Stream series, KGNU's Stacey Johnson looked into the Marshall Fire debris removal, where it went, and what could be recycled. As the activity of heavy machinery grinding away and semi-trucks with long trailers are snaking their way through the neighborhoods of the Marshall Fire Zone, some may be asking how exactly are the cremated remains of a treasured home or property being cleared away, and where does it all end up? Any ash uh, from the fire, any debris, any burned vegetation is being treated as if it contains asbestos. Cody Lilstrom, Boulder County Zero Waste Manager, has an extra role these days by helping orchestrate the county's debris removal efforts as part of disaster response. Lilstrom explains the complexity of debris removal and waste diversion centers on that nasty substance, asbestos. A lot of building supplies still contain uh, asbestos in them, uh, though, you know, we haven't been putting asbestos in insulation for decades now. It's still in other building supplies like epoxies and glues and some sheetrock coatings or drywall coatings have asbestos in them. So when things burn like that in the fire, we got guidance from CDPHE that essentially we just need to assume that, that all of the fire debris and ash is asbestos containing and we're treating it as such. Some property owners of destroyed structures turn to private contractors to get a jump on their rebuilding and recovery efforts. This option seemed especially appealing as Boulder County faced delays and lawsuits challenging its choice of a contractor to handle the publicly funded and large-scale debris removal program. Grand Lake Excavating was one of the first contractors hired directly by property owners in Superior who chose not to sign on to the county's debris removal program. Grand Lake Operations Manager Brad Bauman says they are aware of the asbestos concerns and handle the debris accordingly. So we've got a control plan in process. Um, When we get here, we'll evaluate the site. We'll run all of our erosion control and BMPs. And what does that mean, BMP? Well, it's just keeping all of the ash and debris on your site from getting anywhere else outside of your individual site. Especially if rain, snow, we don't want the runoff. We want our inlet valves to be covered. We just want the process to be as clean as possible to keep the ash in one area. From that point, we'll get our water truck, we'll wet down all the ash, get that concealed into a foundation where the house is burned. So we have one controlled area of where all the ash and debris is at. And then we'll start cleaning the concrete. We'll start cleaning the um, metal. If there's metal and concrete that we can recycle, we will. If not, it gets shipped off to the landfill with the ash and debris that is treated like hazardous material. The transport of hazardous materials involves dumping the waste in a semi-truck trailer bed lined and draped with plastic sheeting and then wrapping the material with the same lining. When finished, the wrapped hazardous load looks like a gigantic plastic burrito. Bauman says once the wrapped load meets his company's standards and the requirements of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, also known as the CDPHE, the truck driver can then place a screen over the load and haul it off to an approved landfill. Shortly after the Marshall Fire, the CDPHE approved the landfills in Commerce City, Erie, Keensburg, and Aurora to accept asbestos or hazardous waste from the Marshall Fire zone. Each load going to a landfill must be accompanied by a manifest, which is a fancy term for a carbon copy form that compiles information on the load, such as weight, the location origin of the waste, what entity generated the waste, and what trucking company is hauling the waste. Bauman says all parties who interact with the load, including the landfill, will sign the manifest. So at the very end of this process, I'll take all of the manifests and I'll scan them in and then submit them to the the county so they can see exactly how much came out of each individual site that we've worked on.
But ground lake excavating, which landfill the waste ends up in, often depends on the turnaround time of hauling and the availability of manifest paperwork from a given location. From his own audit observation of landfills, Boulder County's Cody Lilstrom says landfills do handle asbestos loads responsibly. They were very safe. They dug a hole, buried it in that hole, and covered it back up so that there was no you know, possibility of anything uh, getting out. So they do take it very seriously. Another form of contaminated waste that will also be added to the plastic burrito is soil and organic matter from the ash footprint of a destroyed property. Both Lilstrom and Bauman described a process of an initial scrape of three to six inches of soil from a site. After the initial scrape, different locations at the site will be tested for any remaining heavy metals or other toxins. Pending the outcome of the soil test, more soil could be removed. Bauman said the lab results by his company's own soil engineer are also compiled and examined by the county. Another big question is if anything can get a second life from a destroyed property, and if so, how much? Cody Lilstrom says it largely depends on the age of the home. A lot of these homes were built after the time they used, you know, any sort of asbestos materials in a concrete mixture. So we're pretty confident based on that fact that a majority, a vast majority of these uh, basements, the basement concrete, will be recyclable and it will be able to get a second life. Is there a lot of potential for um, metals from each burn site? There aren't as many metals as you might think from a burn site. There's usually, you know, a big I-beam or something like that that supported the flooring or the joists. And then, you know, automobiles that burned out can be recycled, propane tanks that, you know, were in the fire and exploded, unfortunately. And, uh, other appliances in the house, like water heaters and furnaces that are made of metal, will be scrapped and recycled. Another type of Marshall fire waste that can be diverted from the landfill are burned or damaged trees. The Federal Emergency Management Agency reached out to a biochar facility in Berthoud that heats wood feedstock multiple times the temperature of fire in a gigantic kiln. The kiln can hold 11 cubic yards of wood waste that is heated in a non-oxygenated and vacuumed environment. This process goes on for several hours and is called pyrolysis. The end result is a black shiny carbon which can be used for commercial purposes like in soil amendments, cleanup material for Superfund sites, and mining remediation. The feedstock that goes in the many kilns at the Berthoud Biochar facility include beetle-kill pine trees, trees thinned from forests, pallets, crates, and now burned or damaged trees from the Marshall Fire Zone. We embrace the non-uniform feedstock and then we uh, keep it at temperature long enough to make sure everything's at the same quality and the same consistency. James Gaspard, CEO of Biochar Now, says he was told to expect more than 300 truckloads of damaged vegetation from the Marshall Fire. Gaspard, who is proud of his company's clean emissions and many patents, explains more about his company's unique spin in producing biochar that cleans Superfund sites and municipal wastewater. At the molecular level, when we go through our process, we actually create electrical charges into the wood. So we have, we're the only carbon, according to the USDA labs, that have both positive and negative charges. Gaspard says most of the carbon from the biocharred Marshall Fire trees will likely go to a customer that has developed a process for treating gray water handled by water utilities. And with that, if there's one positive that can come from the negative nasty Marshall Fire is that some of its waste in a new form will help prevent gray water from entering streams and watersheds. Metals and concrete free of asbestos and other contaminants are also expected to get a second life. 
But for all the other remaining debris, ash, and contaminated soil, it's inevitable it will all end up in the landfill, deeply buried and situated in a closed wrap of plastic material that ultimately becomes more waste. Just how much of the waste from the Marshall Fire will have a continued journey or will make its way to an ultimate resting place is information that may take some time to tell. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. Food waste in the United States produces as much pollution as 37 million cars per year. That's according to a report by the National Resources Defense Council, which also found that redirecting just one-third of the country's total food waste would be more than enough to provide food security for communities in need. Boulder Food Rescue is a local organization working to reduce food waste through strategic and energy-conscious redistribution efforts. KGNU's Ellie Stuckrath has more. Hey, I'm here at Boulder Food Rescue. Awesome. Boulder Food Rescue volunteer Katie Tyler walks into Lolita's Market, one of the many local businesses that works with Boulder Food Rescue to help reduce food waste. Boulder Food Rescue's partner grocery stores set aside edible food with bruises or other cosmetic defects to redistribute to local residents in need. Boulder Food Rescue volunteers pick up the food and then sort through it to discard whatever may be spoiled or unsafe to eat. They then drop the food off at a conveniently located community hub. Tyler performs a shift for Boulder Food Rescue every Friday. Almost always, bye-bye. Um, I think Boulder Food Rescue, on a whole, their goal that they are meeting is like 90% of shifts are done on bikes. Tyler says bikes are her preferred mode of transportation anyway, but a dedication to limit emissions is also part of the organization's ethics. Honestly, biking is a little more enjoyable sometimes, especially if it's really nice out, but definitely um, to you know limit like any carbon impacts of doing the shift. We are, you know, reducing food waste, but to just have that little extra mile of, you know, limiting or avoiding carbon emissions. To see how it's done, I jumped on my own bike and tried to keep up with Tyler as she pulled a wagon behind her, soon to be full of food. Our first stop was Natural Grocers, where they gave us a box of produce to sort through. So we sort through all the donations. Um, to make sure we're giving all edible food to the recipient. Tyler says that erring on the side of caution actually avoids waste in the long run because sometimes clients will toss entire boxes of food over a few bad apples. Sort of a rule of thumb is like uh, only keeping stuff you would serve to your kids or thinking like if something looks like it's on the edge, we still would want to this stuff to be edible in like two days time. So if it's like you have to eat it today, we probably want to err on the side of just composting that. After a second stop, Tyler's trailer is loaded with food and we head over to the nearest distribution site. One local recipient of these food drop-offs is Liliana Gayoso, who lives in an income-restricted apartment complex. Toda esta pandemia y, y a través realmente de, de toda esta situación que no solamente pasamos en el mundo realmente. Liliana says that she started receiving groceries from Boulder Food Rescue during the pandemic and it's made her and her family value food all that much more. 
She says she feels blessed to have this type of assistance in her community and wants to acknowledge the volunteers who bring the food with care and in good conditions to her community. All of the drop-off sites are selected by grocery program coordinators, who are members of the community on the receiving end of the food. Boulder Food Rescue Executive Director Hayden Dansky says involving community members in the distribution plan helps eliminate logistical difficulties for accessing food. You know, we'll take food directly to a um, community and that cuts down on barriers like transportation or open hours of operation, right? But when we say like, what hour, what times work best for you? Um, how do you want to run this? You know, they can set it up in a way where people don't have to go through those additional hoops of like filling out paperwork or um, standing in line or whatever those things are. Um, and so that helps people access food in like both a um, dignified, in a dignified way and in a way that's easier for them. Although Dansky and the entire Boulder Food Rescue team are extremely proud and passionate about what they do, they dream of a day where their efforts to prevent food waste and insecurity are no longer needed. How do we actually reuse some of this excess, right, and, and recycle it and repurpose it? Um, how do we have source reduction where we, like, stop overproducing in certain areas and start putting, like, resources and energy into um, places where we actually need that food? So it's a, a giant redistribution issue. After dropping off all of the food recovered during her shift, Tyler returns the Boulder Food Rescue bike and trailer to its starting point. She then answers a survey about her shift so that Boulder Food Rescue can keep track of how much food is going through the system. Tyler said she averages 50 to 60 pounds of rescued food a week. According to their annual report, Boulder Food Rescue diverted nearly half a million pounds of food in 2021 and reached around 6,000 people. Boulder Food Rescue is also helping other cities and communities develop similar programs in their area through the Food Rescue Alliance, a nationwide collaborative effort. Dansky says it's these seemingly small, volunteer-powered efforts that can make a big cumulative dent in both hunger and the waste stream. There's so much happening in this community, in the margins, in the depths, in the cracks, right? And the, like, it's so vibrant and it's so beautiful. For KGNU, I'm Ellie Stuckrath in Boulder. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Alexis Kenyon. Thank you to Jamie Sudler, Stacey Johnson, Ellie Stuckrath, and Shannon Young. Stay tuned for connections with Kathy Partridge. As always, the phone lines will be open. After that, it's the Morning Sound Alternative. All that and more coming up after these world headlines from the BBC.
Did that no good rat cheat on you again? Did your wife leave you for her best friend? Or were you just born under a bad side? Don't suffer all alone. Let KGNU's Blues Legacy help soothe your pain and lift your spirits. The doctor is in every Friday evening from 6 to 9 p.m. Blues for all your moods. Only on KGNU, your community radio station. Stay connected to your local poetry scene. Sacred Voices on Metro Arts is your one-stop shop for conversations with local poets about their work. On this monthly show, we sit down with poets to talk about what inspires their work. Conversations range from politics, gender, education, and more. Tune in on the second Friday of every month at 3 p.m. to listen to Sacred Voices on Metro Arts here on KGNU. Ready to hear some fast-paced songs with hard-edged melodies? Then come by every Friday from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m. on Smash It Back. Smash It Back salutes Mazzetti's original show with a weekly blast of classic punk and other junk for your listening needs. So like I said, make sure to come by every Friday from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m. on KGNU.